Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Today, it's Kyle Malmstrom in the hot seat. Kyle, how are you? Doing great, Eric. Thanks for having me today. I'm so glad you're here. It'd be lonely without you. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, not exactly lonely because Roy's here. Roy Farmer, you brought him on as a guest. Why'd you bring Roy on the show today? Oh, I'm so excited to have Roy on the call today. Roy is such a wealth of information here, and we have so much to talk about. The reason we have Roy on today, the last couple of podcasts we've been doing has all been about business exit planning, and mm-hmm. Roy represents an option that we haven't talked about before that business owners need to be be made aware of. We've been talking about M&A and, and entity structure strategies and valuation and it always circles back to, you know, how, do, how does a business owner get out of a business? How do they get liquidity? And when you start a business, you never really think about that, right? You, mm-hmm. you build the business and then the time comes. There's a couple of, op- there's a couple of different options. You know, if you have a family member that's in the business, you can gift the business down to that family member. You could do a management buyout. You could do a private equity purchase. You could do an asset sale. And this is going to be one more arrow in the quiver for business owners to consider. Roy's the expert here. Couldn't be more happy to have him on the on the call with us today to talk about it. So Roy, why don't you join us here and, and introduce yourself and let us know what your role is and who you work for and who your ideal client is. I'll be happy to do that. I, I think t- today, just to give you some background, uh, personally, after college and two business degrees, I, I started one small company that I later sold to my partner I've had to go through some of these business exit myself. I was then brought in as a chief financial officer of another mid-stage startup, became the CEO, and I ended up selling that company to what later became a division of waste management, the garbage company. So that was strategic acquisition. And then um, I was with some partners. We started a general engineering and general environmental services firm. And we grew that company to about 250 employees, and it was in the the Bay Area. We had nine offices spread out across seven different states, western states. We started having a problem of retaining our engineers. So we would hire a lot of good engineers, and my partners were college professors, two of them were. They would hire young engineers, train them up. And of course, as soon as they got trained, some of our larger competitors with much bigger checkbooks would come in and try to write the the big check and get the guy to move because they were now trained. We went to our attorney and he said, you need an ESOP. Of course, in those days, that was almost 40 years ago. I said, I'm I'm not even sure what, what that is. And he said, well, I'll give you a book and I'll get you to one of my partners. And long story short, we did an ESOP in our company and that really helped to... Uh, stop the flow of outflow of talent because now we were offering stock to our employees and that was something that some of our competitors either were unwilling or unable to do so that's how i became uh, aware of it i did a an esop for my own company and and nothing like doing it for yourself on learning it i later founded a company for called bta business transition advisors And we're a division now of Capstone Headwaters, which is the largest middle market brokerage firm 
in the country. So on transaction sizes under 250 million, we are number one in that space and we are their exclusive ESOP division. We've done, uh, I, I haven't counted it up lately, but roughly 350 transactions between my partner and I and BTA. Values are, typical values are going to be between about 10 million and 100 million. I would say our average transaction size is 20 to 50 million. What we're looking for is a privately held business owner who is wanting liquidity and wants to sell some stock and can either use an ESOP for a partial sale and wants to maybe get some liquidity, some cash, and then own, continue to own a part of the company, or someone who wants to sell 100% of the company and either uh, initially or later walk away and do something else with their life. One of the advantages of an ESOP is it's a way for an owner to get liquidity, create some real tax advantages for themselves and the company, and, and have the ability to continue to control the board of directors and work pretty much as much as they want to. I hope that answers your question. That was a great answer. We like people that eat their own cooking. That is for sure, right? So you having the experience personally, I think goes a long ways to the credibility. And, and of course, doing 350 transactions helps. I'm a business owner. And the days of me exiting are 10 or 15 years down the road. But when it comes time to think about exiting and we've thought about it and the liquidity and there's certain considerations we put in play, Roy, that I want to do right by our customers because they've, they've done right by us, right? We want to do right by the employees. That's really an important piece for us. And of course, you know, we want to take care of ourselves too in the transaction, but we don't necessarily, we, we definitely don't want to be selling out to a private equity firm. We would like to pass the torch and create a legacy in our own business. I have personal interest in this, in this conversation because it's going to apply to me in some way, shape or form down the road. Let's start by talking about when and why would an ESOP come or rise to the top of the exit strategy list for business owners, right? Like what's that situation where they are like, I really want to consider this. Okay. Well, you, you've kind of hit and set the stage pretty well without maybe even knowing it, but there is a, a huge private equity market. They have billions and sometimes, I guess, maybe collectively trillions of dollars. And they get endowment funds and wealthy individuals and corporations that want to make investments and they form a pool. And then they have a team that will go out and try to buy privately held businesses Sometimes those privately held businesses are only owned for a few years. They may inject some money or they may be owned for longer. Sometimes they take the public. But basically, you have two kinds of outside buyers. You have financial buyers and you have strategic buyers. And for the benefit of our audience, a financial buyer is anybody who's just buying a company and wants a return. I put in a million, 10 million, 50 million. I want to get back, you know, 5% or 4% or 12% or 15%. And all of these groups have their own hurdle rates and what they're trying to achieve. And then you have the strategic acquirer. These are companies that want to grow and they, they may be a regional company and the, they'll say they're in the south and they want to expand into the northeast or the west or the northwest. And rather than just hanging out a shingle and renting a new facility and hiring a bunch of people, that really may not even know their company or know their products. 
they're going to go buy a company that already is existing, who already is in that space, that they can go ahead and uh, acquire and not not have all those startup expenses. Now, t- traditionally, those strategic buyers are going to be able to pay a higher price than a financial buyer typically will. An ESOP is a financial buyer. It's not going to be able to compete favorably in every case with the strategic buyer. But the reason a strategic buyer can pay more is they already have infrastructure. They have a CFO, a CEO. They have a director of marketing. They have a director of personnel. They have a variety of infrastructure in their company. But if the acquiring company already has all of that, then they're they're simply not going to need what you have. And typically the C-suite, which is what we call the CFO, CEO, COO, all of that, those individuals are generally the casualties of a strategic acquisition. An ESOP, a lot of owners have told me the same thing you just said. I want to benefit my employees. I don't want, I don't want to have a big payday and make five or $10 million and sell my company and have my employees lose their jobs. I mean, in many cases, our owners work in a smaller community. They may go to church with some of their employees. They may belong to Rotary or Lions Club with some of their employees. Their kids may go to school with their kids. They may know the families. Coming in and getting a big hunk of money for the company, you're certainly entitled to that. That's probably a good thing for for you and your family. But what if all of these other people, or most of them, are casualties? A lot of owners look at that and say, you know what, if there's a way for me to do it and not have to do that, I would be interested in that. And that's what an ESOP can do. So the acronym ESOP stands for Employee Stock Ownership Plan. The the ESOP has been in this form for about 45, 46 years. Uh, The initial precursor to the modern ESOP was called a stock bonus plan. And the first one of those was done by Procter & Gamble in 1870. And then Sears Roebuck & Company did a very famous stock bonus plan in 1905. And stock bonus plans were really popular prior to 1925 because there were no taxes. So if you were my employee, I could go ahead and uh, provide you a bonus of, of stock instead of cash. And that way you would own stock in the company and you didn't have to pay income taxes because we didn't have the income tax until 1913. But Congress never got around to regulating stock bonus plans until 1925. And then nothing happened until 1974. And in 1974, Congress passed ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, and that allowed the modern ESOP to occur because in that law, they created what we all now think is really common, which is a 401k. But I was, I was just out of college in 1974, and I remember when the very first 401ks were done. And so that was a, that was a sea change. It allowed individuals to take pre-tax dollars, put them into a retirement plan called the 401k, allow it to build up, compound, and make investment returns on, and then take it out when they retire, and at that time pay the taxes. Well, what they did with ESOPs is they took the, the old stock bonus plan out of the 1925 tax code, added the new 401k, put them together, and that is a modern ESOP. So now you get a way to bonus your employee's stock without having them pay the tax, even though we now have an income tax, which we didn't have in the early days of this country. So that's really what an ESOP is. 
And the reason the government does them is because today it's estimated that between 60 and 70 percent of all American citizens who go to retire at whatever age they do are incapable of retirement. So the government has, I think at last count, it was around 400 different programs. You see some of them advertised on the, on the, on the television. You know, sign up and we'll bring you free meals to your home. Sign up and we'll give you rides to your medical appointments. Sign up and we'll give you free prescriptions. I mean, they just have all kinds of programs and the, the government pays hundreds of millions and billions of dollars every year for. And back in 1974, Congress realized that the country needed a way to provide a retirement for these other people. And that's why we got ERISA, ESOPs, 401ks, et cetera. That was a great historical background of the development of the plan. But more importantly, like it's, it's, I want to know, I want the audience to know, like who is the ideal candidate for an ESOP, right? So from definition, it's an employee stock owner plan, right? So the, so the employee ends up owning the shares of the company. Sometimes it's 100%, sometimes it's 75%, kind of depends on how your plan works out. Correct. What are the general advantages, right? So like I get a business owner and he's got, you know, $50 million of revenue and he's got $7 million EBITDA, $5 million EBITDA, take your pick. He's like, look, I'm looking at an exit and I do care about my employees. We say, okay, here's how I'm going to introduce Roy to the equation and here are the advantages to you and to the employees. Like who are the cast of characters? Who would benefits in this transaction? Well, a lot of people, but let me just try to take one step at a time. So basically, the people we're looking for are privately held business owners that want liquidity and that are interested in a succession, either now or sometimes off into the future. They need to have about a minimum of 20 employees. They need to be profitable. They need to make at least about a, at least a minimum of a million and a half to $2 million of net income. And that's the target. And once you fit into that category, it's something you should consider. Now, if you remember my, my discussion about what, why the government did this is because to augment people's retirement, they provided three primary tax advantages that are statutory. They're right in the law. We don't have to have an attorney read them and tell us what they say. They're very straightforward. The first is the selling owner, if they meet certain conditions, can avoid paying current state and federal capital gains tax. Not every state in the union has state income tax, but the states that do, these plans are very attractive because many of our clients are, have owned this company, some for more than one or two generations. I've done work with fourth generation business owners who needed liquidity, but I've also worked with a lot of individuals who started the company 25, 30, 35, 40 years ago, and they now want to do something else with their life. And they realize that their biggest asset is in the company, and they don't want to walk away and not manage and control the company until they get paid for it. We, we, we could come in and show them how to do an ESOP, and they would be able to avoid paying current state or federal capital gains tax. Now, if they do this right, they would defer the tax until their, t their time of death, because most of our owners are older, and not all of them. I've done ESOPs for owners as young as 40 years old, but most of them are you know mid, 
mid to, to late 60s, I would say, is kind of the average. And they're now looking for the liquidity that they want from all the hard work that they've actually created in this company. That means if you're familiar with a 1031 real estate exchange, which is pretty common, we have been bestowed in the tax code our own code section, which is section 1042 of the code. And section 1042 of the code allows an owner to sell his or her stock to an ESOP, follow certain rules, and then avoid paying current state or federal capital gains tax. Now, they have to invest their proceeds, just like in real estate, but they buy stocks, bonds, or notes of U.S. domestic companies. So take an individual business owner like you described, $50 million in revenue, 5 to 7 to $10 million in EBITDA. Company might be worth anywhere from 40, 35 to 60, 70 million dollars. And the owner says, you know, I don't, I don't have any basis in the stock. I'm going to be paying, if I get 60 million, I'm going to be paying 60 million capital gains tax. Well, if you, you know, let's take California, which is a probably the worst example, but you're paying a 37% capital gains rate. So if you have a $50 million capital gain, you're going to have the privilege of writing a check for about $17, $18 million. But if you sell to an ESOP, you can leave that money in your pocket instead of putting it in the government's pocket by following these rules I just referred to in 1042. The second advantage... Hey, hey Roy? Yes. I think you have everyone's attention at this moment in time, right? And that's why we do this podcast, because that's exactly what... There's lots of goals on the business exit, and one of them that rises to the top is always the taxation of the sale, right? There's a lot of times people don't want to make the sale because they don't want to pay a tax. There's just, I got people that just won't make a decision because they don't want the IRS to get money. You can call it, you know, everyone has their goals. So, so I think that's an extremely important point that you made there that we have the tax deferral with the potential to get a step up through the tax code and not pay the tax at all. Is that what I just heard? That's what you just heard. It's an initially a deferral and ultimately a, an avoidance if you follow the rules and maintain the exchange. It's exactly like a 1031. I can buy a piece of real estate, let it appreciate, sell it, buy another piece of real estate, do a 1031 exchange, not pay the capital gains tax, and if I own that property on the date of my death, I get a step up and, a, and none of the capital gains are ever paid. Same, same with real estate, except we're doing it with corporate stock instead of individual pieces of real estate. Did I mention how happy I was to have you on the call today? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't, but I'm, I'm glad you did. I'm glad. All right. You want to so know the other two benefits? One. Okay. The so, other two benefits are just as compelling. Number one, if the company is worth, let's say, $30 million, just to pick a number, and we sell our $30 million company to a qualified ESOP trust, which we would make sure is qualified, the company will receive a $30 million tax deduction. Now, that $30 million deduction is worth varying amounts depending on your tax rate, the state you live in, and all of that. In most states, it's around 42 to 45%. So if I gave you a $30 million deduction, the company would save 12 to 15 million and state and federal tax because of that deduction. And it's a dollar for dollar deduction. And it's something else that your 
uh, audience might like to know, ESOPs use what is known as an exempt loan. And there's only one place in the tax code that I'm aware of where you can borrow money and deduct both the principal and the interest on the loan. You can deduct interest on every loan, but principal is only deductible in this case of an exempt loan to an ESOP. And that allows me to get that dollar for dollar, that $30 million deduction we're talking about on this example. The, the last benefit is the most compelling and the most unknown and unused. If we are either are an S-Corp or can become an S-Corp, which most companies can if they're not, and we work with a lot of companies that are LLCs, they're C-corporations, they're S's, they're all kinds of different things. But in the end, if we can make the company an S-Corp and we sell 100% of our stock to the ESOP trust, at that moment, the company becomes state and federal income tax free. There are only two places in the tax code where you can be for profit and pay no state or federal income tax. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about sales tax or property tax or excise taxes or any of the other myriad of taxes that are out there. But in our experience, most companies, their second largest expense behind their employee cost, which is all their you know, salaries and benefits and all of that, all of that business, is state and federal income tax. And the two places are, one is a credit union. And if you were, were a credit union, you're obviously out to make a profit, but the government gave that incentive to a credit union so that the local banks couldn't just crush them. They wanted credit unions to exist, and they made them, they allowed them to pay no state or federal income tax. The only other place is in a 100% ESOP-owned company. Now that K-1 that was originally going to the owner and he was paying his own tax the ESOP is tax exempt, it doesn't pay any tax, and the company now becomes tax-free. Now, just to make this really simple, because I like simple, because sometimes these things can get re relatively complicated. So if either of you were a business owner, I would simply ask you, look, if there was a legal way for you to choose to either pay the government your taxes that you're paying now, and of course, if President Biden does what he promised, then we're going to see tax rates rise substantially. Probably 50% or more of our, of our money will go to taxes if he has his way. If you're a business owner or a high, high net, net worth or high net earner, in this circumstance with an ESOP, you can either pay the government or you can pay your employees. Now, you all know the, the answer already. If you ask a business owner, would you rather pay your employees or pay the government? They always say, of course, I would rather pay my employees. Great. So if you will follow our recommendation and sell 100% of your stock to a qualified ESOP trust, the company will no longer pay any state or federal income tax. We're going to take that money that you've been paying, which is anywhere between probably 35% in Texas to 46 or 47% in California under the current Trump rules, and you're going to pay that money to the government, but instead we're going to keep it in the company. I'm going to use that to pay you and your family, and then I'm going to give the company to the employees. That, in the simplest terms, is how an ESOP works. 
We use the government's money to pay off the owners by virtue of the tax advantages that are allowed to ESOPs, and then we give it to the employees. That, that's how it works. But the owners get their money first, and then the employees can end up owning a beneficial interest in the company. One other point I would like to make is the one of the big issues for owners is control. Most owners are type A personalities. They like making decisions. They're comfortable making decisions, and they're good at it. One thing that terrifies them is to think that they're going to have their employees tell them what to do. And that is absolutely not how ESOPs work. The government got this part right when they passed the law. They allow an owner, even though you sell 100% of your stock, after the sale, you can control the board of directors until you're paid everything you're owed. So you can still stay day-to-day, run the company. You can still get your salary, your bonuses, your benefits, anything that would be reasonable and customary, you're entitled to. And we can arrange it so if there's a three-member board, you can appoint two of the members. If there's a five-member board, you can appoint three of the members, and you get the point. But that owner, through his influence, will still control that board, control the day-to-day and the strategic decisions of the company. And when you think about it, that only makes sense because he's the guy that built the company, or she's the woman who built the company. And why now at this critical juncture, when you're transitioning the owner and transitioning the company to a new ownership form called an ESOP, why in the world would you kick the owner out or let him go? Almost every transaction we do, the owner has to sign an employment agreement. Generally, it's for a minimum of three years. Sometimes it's for five. But most owners are not only glad to sign it, they want to sign it. They want to stay involved. And, and you know, they, they like the fact the company buys their car and pays their medical insurance. And, I like the fact that the government's paying for the employees. I have a feeling people might go back and listen to the last five minutes of this conversation. I feel like listening to it again already. It sounds awesome, Roy. I mean, I don't know if there isn't anything you just said that doesn't sound great. What's not great about it? What is it that a business owner is going to take exception to? Good question. Look, we should talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the, the bad is, or the ugly, however you want to characterize it, is that ESOPs are very complicated. Anyone who's ever read a code section out of the Internal Revenue Code or out of the Code of Federal, Federal Regulations, I don't know what it is. They must find attorneys that can't, can't really <laughs> explain themselves because everything sounds totally crazy and unintelligible, honestly, to an average American. If you're going to do an ESOP, you are going to need a consultant. You are going to need an attorney. You are going to need a good CPA. You are going to need people to advise you and help you work through this process. Otherwise, it's extremely easy to screw something up and have the IRS camping at your door. Now, I I want to tell you in our case, one of the reasons that we work for major banks, major investment banks, major brokerage firms, and many other advisors is because, and I'm I'm knocking on wood if you can hear me, we never, we, we at this moment, have never had a single client ever lose a DOL or an IRS audit. ESOPs are audited just like 401ks, just like your individual tax return, just like anything else with any other form that you file with the IRS. But ESOPs are not targeted. They are not the the bad actors that the IRS is looking for. And of all the audits that we've had over the last 
almost 25 years, we have never had a client ever lose an economic benefit in an IRS or DOL audit. It's they're very solid if you do them correctly and if you get the right advice. If you try to do this yourself, I, I've, I liken it to trying to fix your Mercedes using your owner's bed. I mean, there probably are a few people in the country that could do that, but most would just make a mess of it. So you have to have a consultant. That's a downside. The other downside is, is that you're going to have to file, have, start a new company. It's called an ESOP. You're going to have to file, have, have a tax form filed. Uh, just like every other retirement plan, you have to tell your employees that you have a retirement plan and you have to report to them once a year and tell them what their benefits are. And that all can be done with a third party administrator. But that, that might cost you anywhere from five to $25,000, depending on the size of the company annually, just like you do with your 401k. The only other difference between an ESOP and administering the plan in a 401k is that every year in an ESOP, you have to have a valuation. Now, again, depending on the size of the company, that annual updated valuation can be six to probably $20,000. Those are the costs, but think about the fact that you're no longer paying any state or federal income tax. Think about the fact that the owner was able to not pay the capital gains taxes. I mean, many times these benefits are huge. Now, just one other comment. We may not have time to go into it today, but there are ways to use your ESOP and create a huge gift and estate planning benefit for the client. Normally, we only do some of these more sophisticated techniques when the owners have net worths of 50 million or more. Usually the company is the majority of that net worth, but we have worked with clients with billion dollar net worths. And if, if you're if those who are listening understand that the estate tax is now about an $11 million exemption for husband and then 11 for the wife, 22 million doesn't go very far if you're worth 50 or $100 million. And everything above that can be taxed at 40 to 50%, depending on the state you live in and other factors. But in an ESOP, we have a way to really get the value of the business into your family trust or family limited partnership at very reasonable and in sometimes no gift or estate taxes. So we, we could probably make that the subject of a whole nother. Yeah, we, we can definitely make that a, another conversation, Roy. Complexity, I heard on the, on the issues here that someone may not like is complexity and I got some additional costs with the third-party administrator and evaluation firm. That's right. But based based on the fact that I don't own the company anymore, I don't suspect that's going to be that big a deal to me, and I think the IRS is going to pay for that. I me mean, personally, I don't see the – I think initially it, it may be a stumbling block, but once you get once you get the, the vision in your head how it's all going to lay out, I don't – I think you could move past that. But that may be why when you said, hey, from an income standpoint – you need at least a million and a half, right? Right, it's just so you get the economics of scale. But I, I will tell you the the cost and expenses, and then of course you're paying all those people we talked about. You got to pay attorneys and accountants, and got to pay us, and you got to. It it generally costs you about a half to two thirds of what it would cost to hire an investment bank to sell the company to a third party. But it's not free and it's not cheap. But most of the times the costs. Are, are offset by the tax benefits, both in the first year and ongoing. And it is not uncommon for owners to, to save 
40 or 50 times the costs and fees that they used to set up just in the taxes. I'll give you a quick example. I did a, an ESOP four or five years ago for a company in California. Name isn't important, but it was a plumbing, heating, and air conditioning ventilating company. About $600 million in revenue. They were making about $25 million a year in net income, paying tax on about $25 million. A company valued at around $110 million, and we did a 100% S-Corp ESOP for them. We were able to make them tax-free, and over the first 10 years of the plan, they saved $125 million in state and federal income tax. Just as I explained earlier, we took that $125 million, left it in the company, used it to pay the owners for their $110 million company, plus some interest because we, we can't probably pay for it all up front. And that's the other thing that an ESOP isn't going to do. We don't have, the company doesn't have a big checkbook that it can write the owner 30 or 50 or $100 million check. So we, we have to go to the bank and borrow some money. And that usually is not a big deal or a big problem. And then the owner will take a note for a portion of the sale. And there are some real advantages to that note once they understand how that works. Most of our clients want to take the note, even if they didn't have to, they, they would want to do it. That's also, you know, an advantage to the owner. But that $125 million savings in state and federal income tax is something that owners, I mean, when you tell that to them, it almost doesn't process. I mean, it's like, how can I do that? But again, we've never had a client ever lose a DOL or IRS audit. And all of the benefits that we ever projected for the clients have been realized. It's a pretty astounding record given the areas that we work in, but these tax rules are very well defined. I tell people it's like when I was in kindergarten, you know, I learned really early on that the teacher liked it when you colored within the lines. If you were sloppy and didn't want to cover color within the lines, then the teacher paid attention to you. In this, it's the same way. We know where the lines are. We've done over 350 transactions. We're going to color in the lines. We're going to do it right. And if you do it right, you're not going to hear from the IRS or the DOL in any negative way. So you, you started to get into a little bit of the actual transaction, which I wholeheartedly think we should avoid for this conversation because it's it's lengthy. And I'd actually like to have you back in to kind of go through the, the transaction in in more detail. But in the in what what dawned on me, because that, that story is incredible, right? You saved over $100 million in tax. How does, is there an opportunity for the employee, the shareholder, the owner to sell, create this structure, benefit his, his and her employees, and then still, you know, they still have the control until they're exited, but then is there a way for them to still capture some upside? Because, you know, you got a lot of, you got a lot more revenue pumping into that company if you don't have to pay those taxes, right? So they got a little bit of a competitive advantage because they don't have that burden. And so how do they get upside? How do they get their cake and eat it too here? The answer is yes, they can They can do that. And the, the explanation is easier with the PowerPoint, but let me just say this. Let's assume we're selling that $30 million mythical company that we used as our early example. Today, a bank is willing to lend between two and three times EBITDA as senior debt. Most of the clients we work with have very little, if any, debt. That the, the company's mature, the owner's paid off 
most, if not all, of his debt, and now he's looking for an exit. I would say that's how we find 80 to 90% of our clients are in that situation. We, we could borrow, let's say a $30 million company would have EBITDA of $7 million or $6 million. We could borrow about somewhere between 15 and $18 million in senior debt from a bank. And then the owner would be best advised to carry the, the paper on the, the note, which is would be a junior to the bank. And according to the IRS, that owner is entitled to a market rate of interest. Well, may, maybe your audience is not aware of the kind of interest rates that are charged on what is known as mezzanine or junior corporate debt. But today it's 9 to 11%, even with these low interest rates, because they're behind the bank. Uh, it's like a second mortgage, except you don't have a piece of real estate securing it. You just have the company assets. And if something goes wrong with the company, some of these values can really almost disappear overnight. That second owner would normally, that junior corporate owner would normally be hanging out. But in this case, that junior corporate owner is the owner who ran and started the company, knows it inside and out, is going to control the board of directors, and if wants to, can still be the CEO and run it day to day just like he or she has always done. So there's no more risk in that structure than typically there would be in, a, in another circumstance. We give them the cash, let's say 15 to 18 million. Then they would get a promissory note for the balance, which would be 15, 12 to 15 million. And that note would carry interest. Now, most of the time, the bank, the senior lender, will not allow the junior lender, the owner, to take a higher interest rate than they do. They don't want the owner pulling a lot of cash out. They don't want their first mortgage position compromised. So they say, okay, you know, Eric, you're, you're going to hold the note, but we're lending you this money at three and a half percent. So we want you to lend your money at the same rate as ours, three and a half percent. And that the, most of the owners, when they understand why they ought to do that, they readily agree. So what we then do is bring in a valuer. And we, we use that IRS guidance that just because you're the seller, you don't have to take a bargain rate of interest. You get a market rate just like everybody else in any other transaction. So we value the difference. Let's say that the mezzanine rate or the junior corporate debt rate in that market is 10%, just to keep the numbers easy. And let's say the bank is loaning the money, it's three and a half. So we value that foregone interest that the owner will not collect because he's going to have to take the three and a half. Well, on a $15 million note for, let's say, five or six or seven or eight years, whatever it ends up being, and you're giving up six and a half percent compounded for that whole time, that could be a lot of money. And we take yep. that, convert it into a warrant, and the owners get a warrant that allows them to buy stock at a later date at, the, at a fixed price based on today's price. And those are called warrants. And we, we do those with most transactions. You pretty much have to sell 100% to be able to do that. If you want to do a minority ESOP and sell 49 or 55 or some other number, they're usually mathematically, you aren't going to be able to make the warrants work. But if you sell 100%, you would get warrants. And normally that can be 15 to 25% of the future equity of the company. And to your point, if you are tax-free, 
think about the advantages that give you. I use a little example and say, okay, let's say the three of us on this call are qualified general contractors. And we, we have great reputations, we have good financial strength, and we have the ear of the mayor of our town. They're going to build a new $50 million jail, courthouse, and sheriff's complex, criminal justice complex. And they've already got the site picked out, and they decide they're only going to allow people to bid this who are qualified. So let's say the three of us are qualified, and we make the cut. We apply and get approved. Now, the other two contractors in this case are paying state and federal income tax, and I'm not. Let's bid. So you end up in a competitive situation with the most attractive operating platform that exists in this country. The fact that you're not paying taxes while your competitors are. Now, a good example of that is Winco Foods. And I use them because they're, they're founded in the state that I live in, in Idaho. They're now about a 40-year-old ESOP. They run a grocery store business. It's a hybrid between Food for Less and Albertsons. Their claim to fame is that they sell their products cheaper than Walmart, they pay their employees more per hour, and they make a higher net profit. And they can do that because they pay no state or federal income tax. That's a great example because I have a Winco Foods across you know, right down the road from me. And I always wondered how they, I didn't, I didn't realize they were an ESOP and you now it makes perfect sense. Go to every Winco store. It says employee owned company right on the front, right with the Winco sign. Hey Roy, awesome information. There's no doubt you captured the, the ear of the audience here. If you join me again, I'd like to have another conversation with you a little bit more on the details and kind of the loans and some of the mechanics. Cause I know, the audience is going to want to hear some of that stuff at, at some point. Thanks for joining me today. No problem. I, I enjoyed it. Be happy to do it. All you need to do is get a hold of Heather and schedule me at a time, and we can do it again. No problem. Yeah, why don't you give everybody your contact information? How can they get in touch with you? It's uh, Roy Farmer, and the best way is my cell phone, 208-761-3612. We have a website. We have plenty of material. Just for your information, I do have a booklet that we buy that was written by an attorney in our trade association. It's called An Introduction to ESOPs. It's a 54-page, loose-leaf, kind of loose-bound book published by the trade association. We, we give these out complimentary. It's probably a two-and-a-half, three-hour read if you read every part of it. But it gives you a really good introduction. It doesn't go into the investment banking and more sophisticated techniques like estate planning. But those are things that we add to the basic ESOP structure, which we think really turbocharges the, the transaction for the client. Hey, Roy, it's been great talking to you today. You're welcome. Thank you very much for the time. Gentlemen, this has been fantastic. Kyle, of course, thank you so much for bringing Roy on. And Roy, thank you for the generosity in all the information you shared. I know that business owners out there that are keying in on some of those things that you said are probably salivating to uh, to continue this conversation or listen to this podcast again, like Kyle said. Uh, so thank you so much for being a great guest. And of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when they come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks for listening today. 
For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results.